Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? And welcome to the inaugural, revamped, brand new, new edition, every other version of new you can think of, the Socks on 35th podcast. How's it going, everybody? This is Duke Coughlin, and, and I am joined by the fellow hosts with the most, Jordan Lazowski, Nick Wauer, it's Duke Coughlin, and God, guys, we're back. Just join me here. We're back. Jordan, are we back? Nick, are we back? Tell me how back we are. I, I think we're back. If we, if we haven't made it clear enough, I think we're back. Um, you know, for those fans who have been with us, I think we've been doing this. God, this is going to be seven seasons now, some of us. Um, we have been less than consistent regarding this podcast, and that's putting it kindly. Um, we also took a year off from doing the podcast, so... We're excited to be back and doing this. You know, there's been a lot of work put in behind the scenes. Um, we've got a true, true professional as a host here with Duke. Um, not to dr- throw Joe under the bus. I'm just as much to blame for that. Um, trust me. But I, I, we're truly very excited to be back and doing this. And in case it's not clear, we are in fact back. Yeah, I want to echo everything Jordan said. It's obviously been a while. Um, I also, especially for those of you who haven't watched our um prior pre-revamp podcast I, I promise you i do own um white socks gear i realize it might look kind of funny those of you watching on youtube if, if you're not watching you won't know what i'm talking about but duke and jordan are both wearing white socks hats and jordan even has a socks on 35th sweatshirt on that looks very good and i'm wearing like a nondescript like teal or something shirt but i am a white socks fan just want to get make that clear right <laughs> out of the gate um and i'm excited to be back and, and Nick, to your, to your attire, man, I'm telling you, toss a cowboy hat on. You got the John Deere green going. Like, you're good. You're good. <laughs> you, you, fit, you fit right in. Lance Lynn would definitely consider you a boy. So, anyway, um, speaking of inconsistencies, you know, talking about the last podcast and whatnot, um, we have a certain pitcher just to jump right in. Just to jump it right in. And this totally isn't directed at you, Jordan, but it's something that I feel like we need to talk about as White Sox fans. But speaking of inconsistencies, Lucas Giolito is coming into this season as probably one of the bigger question marks within the pitching staff. You really see him turn it on in 2019 and 2020 and 2021. You know, this is, that's kind of where you see like, is Lucas G little the ace of the staff? Like, is this a guy that we consider really tossing some money at and locking up as, you know, our top of rotation guy. And, um, you know, I think we saw it tail off a little bit in 2021 where we were wondering like, okay, you know, maybe Lucas is kind of having a little bit of a down season, um, but then you see in 2022, you really see the numbers kind of really take a nosedive. His ERA was hovering around five. His FIP was around 406. K percentage, 25.4. And this is a guy who, you know, never really been known as like a super high strikeout pitcher, but hitting points of like 10 starts where he would just be striking out nine, 10 consistently. And you see that walk percentage start to come up. You see the home runs start start to go up uh, per nine innings. And um, obviously the most concerning of all of them, the fastball velocity, especially in a game that we're currently in right now where velocity is kind of the name of the game. You know, we have spin rates, we have miles per hour. We have, we have guys who are coming into the major leagues and throwing 99, hundred fairly consistently. We're, we're kind of in this like lull with, with Lucas Giolito right now. And um, personally, and I'll let you guys take the, uh, 
take the run here a little bit, but I do want to bring up the fact that I think a lot of it has to do with pitch, uh, pitch selection. You know, I think uh, baseball savant is a very, very great tool to use um, for anybody who is ever wondering why a pitcher is struggling. You can usually find something that will kind of help you explain it. And um, I think fastball usage, and I think uh, really his changeup going down and his slider percentage going up um, really have some sort of play in here. Um, obviously Lucas has been going to the slider a little bit more as we've seen in, uh, a little bit more than recent years. And, um, I think the biggest, I think the biggest problem with Lucas over the years has been that third pitch. And I think that's something that a lot of, uh, top end pitchers even deal with, uh, to kind of really mix it up, but it really hasn't worked. You know, it's really been a situation where with his fastball velocity going down with him kind of focusing on that a little bit more than in past years, um, that's, that's been kind of hurting him. And usually if you're, if you have a fastball, it's not really kind of connecting, uh, speed wise, and you have a slider that's hanging over the plate, it's usually a recipe for disaster. And when you have a changeup on top of that, no matter how good that changeup is, once batters start sitting on it, I think that's where you run into real issues. And I think that's something that's kind of been working against Lucas throughout the, the past two years. You know, I, I think, uh, we're focusing a lot on 2022, but I think 2021, we saw that quite a bit as well. Um, especially when it came to the changeup, his changeup was starting to get used a lot more um, with less fastball, considerably less fastball. I think he went uh, throwing nearly half fastball in 2020 to 43.9%, and uh, that's with his changeup really barely changing. So I'll let you guys take this over a little bit more. I know I was just tossing a lot of information out there, but uh, Nick, what is what do you think – is the Lucas Giolito problem right now? Is this something that could be easily fixed? Is this something that you think is a long-term issue? Um, where, where do you kind of stand on the whole the whole issue? Yeah, thanks, Dwayne. I think that's a great um, lead-in. Lots of good information there. I think that, for me at least, especially coming into last year, I thought that fastball velocity was the biggest issue, um, primarily because we've seen, even in his dominant years, like, you know, 2019 and 2020, and, you know, a good amount of 21, it, it's not really, like, I don't think that um, debatable or something that people are unclear about, but when Giolito had starts where he was sitting 94 versus sitting like 91, he tended to be more effective at 94 because the changeup played off the fastball better, for example. And going into last year, uh, when he came into camp super bulked up, he said the idea behind that was he wanted to have a more consistently high velocity fastball. Not like, you know, 96, 97, he wasn't trying to be that guy, but not have those starts where he was sitting 91. Um, that was kind of the rationale. And I fully bought into that last year. I thought that was a great idea. I thought that he would be in Cy Young consideration at the end of the year. I even remember we did like our Sox on 35th like preseason prediction article. And most people went with Dylan Cease for like Team Cy Young. I put Giolito. Then we revisited those predictions in I think late May. And a lot of people changed to Cease, those who didn't. I still put Giolito because at that time in the season, he wasn't that bad yet. And also, I just, I really believed in what he was doing, but of course the fastball velocity did not go up as you can see on the graphic and as Duke said. And I just think that to me that that's the biggest concern. So now you go into camp now, his mechanics are, are very different. Not quite, you know, twenty eighteen level with the arm action. It's not completely extended, but it's a lot more so than it was before. And my concern with that now is that I'm just worried one of the reasons he was so effective is that the fastball and changeup, yes, they played off each other well, but the tunneling of it, the deception of it, the hitter can't really pick it up that early because of the way that he concealed the ball in his delivery. And now 
that's not really there anymore to the same extent. And sure, maybe I'm not doubting, you know, his work ethic. I know he did a lot of biomechanical analysis in the winter and that his delivery is largely based off that. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that, you know, I, I could trust in that. But just the fan in me, when I see him not using the different, the shorter arm arm action and when I see him, you know, going back to the old way, which I guess is good, but I don't want to read too much into it since I overreacted last year. Like, I, I just, I can't help but be a little wary. So, Jordan, I know you're probably uh, chomping at the bit to get in here, the resident Julito stand, so I'll, I'll let you jump in now. Well, as a founding member of the Lucas Giolito hype train, you're both not invited anytime soon. Um, just so we're clear about that to start. Um, in, in all seriousness, though, I, I think there's truth to what you're both saying. Um, to, to get out in front of it, fully a believer in Lucas Giolito still. Um, so, so let me get right out in front of that. From there, it's an interesting question of, you know, how do you go about changing it? I think it's easy to diagnose it. The fastball was down. Um, walk rate skyrocketed a little bit. And the changeup didn't look the same. And the slider didn't look the same. The shape of the pitches didn't look the same. They didn't move the way they had in previous years. How do you fix that? You probably start with your mechanics. If you were gripping the ball the same way all three, four of the past seasons, and three of them you had success, it's probably not the grip of the pitches. It might be on the fastball side of things. Um, but but if I'm going to turn to pitch grips, I'm probably not going to at least start there. The next logical place is the mechanics and figuring out, you know, this is a six foot seven, six foot eight dude. I don't know if he's that tall, but he's a tall dude um, where it's very hard to keep things in balance with each other. So repeatability, consistency, it's something that any coach is teaching, and I'm sure Ethan Katz ha- has kind of figured out how to say, okay, wh- what's the most repeatable way for you to feel good about these mechanics? And, and I think when you talk about the arm action, some of the changes um, in terms of keeping everything together more consistently, like if that means getting a little bit away from that longer arm action, remember what spurred it in the first place. It wasn't Ethan Katz going and saying, I think you should shorten your arm action. It was the med ball work he was doing, and it just naturally changed that little bit. There, there's nothing to say that there was just another natural change back from one direction to another. Um, I, I don't think that it's irrational to think, hey, maybe just a different drill or a different look at things made some small tweaks here again. Um, but at the same time, Duke, to your point, did some research on this. I was very surprised to see what happened with Lucas Giolito this year in, in terms of pitch repertoire, pitch selection. You know, a, a lot of times this season, if you look on a count-by-count count basis, the vast majority of times, Lucas Giolito moved away from his changeup this year, which is what a lot of people wanted to see. People wanted to see, go establish that third pitch, your slider, consistently. Go be a three-pitch pitcher. Don't rely on two. Instead of moving a lot of the pitches he was throwing as changeups to sliders, or maybe a mix of both, the majority of the time he was moving from changeups to fastballs in most counts. If you look at a, a breakdown of pitches by count, 2021-2022, he moved away from the changeup and not necessarily towards the slider, towards the fastball. So now you've and it circles back to the velo that we talked about now you've moved towards a pitch that's not working well essentially you have changed from 
a fastball slider pitcher to a heavy fastball guy in a lot of counts, his fastball jumped almost to 50% again this year, 47.7%. And it was not a good fastball, both in terms of pitch movement as well as velocity. You moved your stuff towards what was your worst pitch last year, and you got really bad results as a result. Don't Four percentage points difference is a lot in the grand scheme of things. So in terms of fixing him, yeah, like I said, it's easy to diagnose the problem. Let's start with the fastball velocity. Is it back? If it's not, and you're still sitting 92-93 consistently, all right, where's that curveball now? Where's that Dylan Cease 50% off-speed pitch that you're going to throw? Now you have it's, – it's all game theory, essentially. It's you, People are reacting to you, so you're reacting to them. So I, I understand season to season why – pitch repertoires, pitch percentages change, but you move to a worse pitch. So now you got to reset the whole thing and say, all right, what am I working with this year? What is different about my arsenal? If I'm not just going to blow fastballs by guys, how am I going to change my arsenal this year? My 45% sliders and 25% changeups and now 10% curveballs. That, that's where that difference becomes of, you know, what are you working with now? It's nice to talk about the arm action. It's nice to talk about the pitch selection. But what am I working with right now? I, I think it's nice to get him back to who he was. But at the same time, even who he was still had a lot of growth. There was still the missing curveball, for example. And it, it's trying to put that all together to say, what is the best version of 2023 Lucas Giolito based on what we have sitting in front of us right now? Yeah, no doubt. I think you make I think you make some really good points there. Um especially when it comes to the curveball, but I will say like I think I think Dylan Cease has proven you don't necessarily need a a full-time curveball to make like make it work as like a third pitch. I think Steve Stone actually does a great job of describing a curveball is like that's it's like that pitch that just you don't want that batter to see coming whatsoever. It's that I throw it so not often that when I throw it, it's like a, oh my goodness, that curveball just flew right by me. Either I swung way too early on it or it just dropped right in front of me and there was nothing I could do about it. Um, but not to go too crazy on this point, but um, I one thing that I did see when I was looking at Lucas Giolito's uh, baseball savant page, and I think it's something that actually kind of plays really well into what we were talking about, especially with his fastball. Um, it looks like with the vertical movement on his pitches that everything was rising on him. And I don't know if that has something to do with mechanics, but when you have a rising slider, that is a not, that is not a good thing to have whatsoever. Because if, if you have a slider rising in the zone, that thing's going over the wall. Um, like any batter who like diagnoses that right off the bat and with how often he was going to his slider, like it shows on his baseball, baseball savant page that like he was against average, he was having his slider drop about three inches in 2021, whereas it was up, he was going up about half an inch this season, you know, and that, that might not sound like a lot to somebody who's doesn't really have quite an understanding of how pitches maybe come out outside of the hand, but like that's, that's a significant amount, especially with a rising slider. Um, and it seems like really looking at this graph that his fastball is really the only pitch he can control low. 
And when it hits a point where batters start expecting a fastball to get pitched low, that's when they're really going to start golfing, and that's how you're going to get moonshots over the right right or left field wall. So I, I'm not sure if it is a mechanics thing. Um, it, it's certainly something that he's going to be working on, and you know, potentially he looked at the same graph and kind of thought a similar thing, like why are my pitches rising on me? You know, why can I not control anything low into the zone? Because you know, especially with a slider, and we see it with like Dylan Cease's slider, just right right below the knees or right at the knees where it can just t- like tail right off the end of the plate. It's a beautiful thing to watch when it works. But when you have a slider that's rising and you have a slider that's not breaking the way you want it to, because it's going up instead of going vertical or horizontal, like it's a tough thing to deal with as a pitcher. It really is. Yeah. And that's part of why Dylan Cease was so good last year. I think it's pretty well known that he started throwing a different slider about the of the season. One that was faster velocity wise and, uh, was more focused on horizontal break. It didn't rise as much. We've even seen uh, Ronaldo Lopez, I believe, go to driveline over the winter for the same purpose to try to remove some of the vertical movement on his slider. Because, you know, rise on a fastball is one thing, but on a slider, like Duke was saying, it's not not as ideal. And then I also go back to what you guys were talking about with his curveball. And I, I always think back to, like, 2015, 2016, when he was a top five prospect in baseball on the Nationals. I remember reading the prospect pages back then and thinking, wow, this guy's curveball just sounds amazing. Like, I really wish the White Sox had a pitcher like this. And then he gets to the White Sox and the curveball, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it an afterthought because there were times when he's tried to sprinkle it in, but it certainly wasn't this, like, you know, revolutionary pitch like it was described in, in the rankings. So it will be great to see that come back. And then the last thing I want to add is that I will I will say that even if, you know, it's, it's spring training, and I'm not talking about the results. He does look pretty fluid, this new delivery. I think that that is something that is definitely worth noting. And he's also in a contract year. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned that yet, but that's something that typically is a source of motivation for players. Um, had he not had his um, down 2022, he'd probably be looking at a really, really significant contract this winter. But if he has this season that's as good as, I would say, like 2019 to 21, I would imagine that his next contract the 22 season won't really matter that much. Teams will believe that he is this guy going forward. So he has a lot of um, personal motivation on the line here. And I think that uh, that's one thing in his favor, because if you believe in his work ethic, and I think you kind of have to, given you know what happened between 2018 and 2019, chances are he knows what he's doing. And, and you know this year, I think, could be a really big year for him. And at the end of the day, I kind of think both of you have alluded to it. It comes down to... How do you take what happened last year and make the necessary changes? And what are those necessary changes? Again, we we can talk about the slider shape, the fastball shape. Where does that come from? How does that start? And kind of getting back to the the root of it is where I'm hoping that Lucas Giolito was throughout this offseason with Ethan Katz, with his own biomechanical work, things like that. And I think it's nice to see that he was sitting 92-93 in his first outing. That's not where you're going to finish necessarily, but if you're starting there, that's a good place to start. Yeah, no doubt. And with with his velocity, as we see with a lot of pitchers, it's usually like the fourth, fifth inning where you really start seeing it top out. Um, Guys who start trying to throw too fast in the first two, three innings, that's usually how they burn out. Um, And that's something something like as you grow as a pitcher that you definitely learn. Um, But I – I, I think a lot of people are being really hard on Lucas for that spring training outing against the Dodgers, but I think um, I, I'm I'm going into the season with an open mind with him. I really am. You know, I'm I've always considered myself a fan of Lucas Giolito. Um, 
I can be a little hard on him because like, I, I know what makes him good and what kind of like where his struggles land. You know, I'm pretty honest with what he is as a player, but um, I, I love the guy behind it. And I, I think that's what keeps me rooting for him. And I, I'm really hoping that a guy like Ethan Katz, who is pretty familiar with him, uh, can really help to figure it out. But um, as far as people who are uh, familiar with this team, we have a big interview here. I don't know if you guys know, but um, this guy, um, he's been doing this since like 2005. Chuck Garfine. Um, I don't know if that rings a bell. Never Works for NBC Sports Chicago. Does the, does the pregame, does the postgame. Um, hangs out with Ozzy Ginn more than uh, anybody else on the planet, unfortunately, uh, for all of us, because I would love to hang out with Ozzy Ginn. Um, we have him on, on call. He's about to pop in, and uh, we're about to have a discussion with Chuck Garfine about what we are missing as fans from the spring training of the Chicago White Sox. So very excited to get that going. All right, guys, and we are now joined by NBC Sports analyst Chuck Garfine. He is in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Chuck, how's it going out there? How is the weather? And um, how long have you been doing it out there for a while? Uh, you've been out there for a while now, yeah? Yeah, I've been here since uh, been about a month. Uh, I'm not complaining. I'm loving covering uh, White Sox baseball, and uh, it's been a very interesting camp. And I'm here to answer all your questions. We can talk about all sorts of things. Uh, it's been um, an enlightening spring training, to say the least. I mean, I could certainly imagine, especially with uh, new manager Pedro Grafol. Um, it's a little bit different of a vibe out there, I'm sure, um, as we can get into. Um, you know, just to keep it a little interpersonal before we jump right in. Um, been doing it since 2005. That's, that's about 18 years. Uh, what keeps you coming back? I mean, is it is it Ozzy keeping you coming back every single year to deal with him on the post game show? Um, what excites you about the job? You know, what keeps what keeps Chuck Garfine going? I love my job. That's what keeps me going. I pinch myself that I get to do this for a living. I mean, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up a White Sox fan. My goal was to always get back to Chicago and be a sportscaster and cover the teams that I grew up watching. So uh, it took about. 10 years of working all across the country. So to get back to Chicago and then the first year that I'm on the air, they win the world series and I'm covering them. Uh, it was like fairy dust had been sprinkled on me and my career after, uh, I was, uh, slogging it for a long time. It wasn't so easy. And so, uh, this has been a great, uh, team to cover through the ups and the downs. I love baseball and, you know, it's it's a, a routine that I've uh, gotten used to. Uh, the job itself has evolved. It's changed a lot. I used to just do television, strictly television. But now it's TV, it's reporting, it's pre- and post-game shows, it's podcasting, it's writing for our website. Fortunately for myself, I love the craft of the job. I didn't do this to, like, just be on television. I love all the meat and potatoes, the nooks, the crannies, just every little thing about what it means and what it, it, it takes to be a sportscaster. So um, that's what keeps me coming back, among many other things. And next, first of all, before I get into it, Chuck, it's good to have you on the podcast as our first um, as our first guest of the revamp. Uh, so very high honor that we bestowed upon you. Thank you for joining us for it. Um, 
as you go through it, and you kind of mentioned it, you know, there's a lot of different waves of the team, the ups, the downs, all of the coverage throughout the years. Because of that, you've had a chance to see a lot of different styles over the years, different managers, the one you're currently on the job with, with NBC Sports Chicago, a couple other managers within there. Obviously, this season, there's a lot of talk surrounding the coaching staff for obvious reasons, the the changes, um, brand new manager, things like that. Because of that heightened emphasis, I I feel like fans are very um, alert to what's going on with the manager, what he's saying, what he's not saying. And I guess from you, being on the boots on the ground here in this case... What are you seeing, both good and bad, I guess, that, that's different in this staff in the way Pedro Grafal runs his team compared to teams you've been there for and covering in the past? All right. Uh, if I'm being honest with you, the Tony LaRussa era was not a good one. The results weren't there. Now, when I say the results weren't there, they won the division. They won the division in 2021, and... We have to acknowledge that, and I do. And a lot of things went right for the White Sox in 2021. Among those things were the rest of the division wasn't good. Okay? I'm calling a spade a spade. They they weren't really challenged. Well, they were challenged last year. And it's not just the coaching staff as to why the White Sox struggled last year. Injuries were a big part of it, huge part of it. Underperformance, yes. Coaching, Tony. Yes. Tony was, as we've learned, was sick for, if not all the season, most of the season. You throw all that into the equation, that's what happened. That's why they went 81 and 81. The difference between this coaching staff and last year's coaching staff, to some degree, and this is just spring training, maybe to a larger degree, is like night and day. What Pedro Grofol is saying is what I want to be hearing. All the th- and these are words. These are words, but these are words that are so n- needed. What was missing last year? The hustling, the fundamentals, defense, the little things, doing whatever it takes to win baseball games. This is in the belly, in the soul of Pedro Grafal, and he's saying it essentially every day. He's great with the media, and when I say great with the media. He says stuff to us. He's, he's giving of information. He's talking about all the things he's preaching. He's sharing things he's talking to the players about. And I felt Tony was just way too guarded with us. The problem I think that Tony had was that he walked into a situation where the team was already there. And he was like this hired gun to take over. And I thought we were getting the old Tony LaRusso, the former Tony LaRusso, the guy who's just was a, it's a tough guy, tough manager, tough on his players, but the players respected and played hard for him. What I saw from Tony was he did the opposite. He was trying to fit in with his players. And I think a lot of White Sox fans were wanting him to do that. Remember the whole thing with Tim Anderson? How's he going to be able to coach Tim Anderson, manage Tim Anderson? He was trying to fit in. And as we found out last season, he didn't, they didn't need a manager to fit in. They needed a manager to show them the way, right? To show them and hold guys accountable. He wasn't either able to do it, chose not to do it, but didn't do it. Grafol and this coaching staff 
seem to be, from what they're saying, they'll hold guys accountable. But what's also helping the coaching staff is you got all these players coming in with something to prove. They showed up licking their wounds after last season. So it's a great situation for a new coaching staff to come in because the buy-in is all there. The players are buying what they're saying. I don't want to say what they're selling because they're not really selling, but they're buying what they're saying. So uh, it just feels different. It looks different. It sounds different. It's spring training, but if I was to script how I wanted to see what I wanted to see from the White Sox, their coaching staff, for the first few weeks of spring training, this is basically spot on what I'd be looking for. I, I think you touched on a lot of really good points there, Chuck, and I think it's really impossible, even from the outside looking in, to see that this team, they're just there was a buy-in that was missing with Tony last year. You know, and, and like you said, whether that had to do with his health, whether that had to do with, you know, certain guys in the locker room maybe not buying in. Um, I, I guess I, I guess the biggest question a lot of people have is um, really where where's the culture? You know, because you have Jose Abreu with his comments to the media. Um, Jose just very much a well, well-beloved figure in Chicago. Um, I, I guess that raised a lot of questions, but it's really good to hear that there is definitely a night and day type of culture going on in uh, spring training right now, that there's definitely a different vibe. Um and uh, it, it's it's all really reassuring to hear, um, and uh, I think that's I think that's something that's going to really kind of put a lot of fans at ease, especially because there was a lot of, you know, and and this is kind of a kind of a lame type of excuse that fans use, but you know, you you get kind of worn out at, with all like the negativity, you get worn out with the constant, you know, your manager getting beat over the head, whether it's correct or not, you know, and I think everyone was just ready for a fresh start, and I hope uh, hope a lot of these players are too. Yeah, and I'll say that, you know, there were many reasons why the White Sox went 81 and 81. They were abnormally hurt. There were so many injuries to that team that that didn't help Tony La Russa out. <laughs> I mean, if they were healthy and there wasn't so much underperformance, uh, they probably would have, if not won the division, certainly competed more for it. And maybe, I mean, it, it's Tony's health that is a, a, the big problem as to why he's not here, but... I mean, there wouldn't be so much on Tony. But when the SHIT hit the fan like it did, you're just blaming every, There's blame to go everywhere, right? You can blame the front office. You can blame Tony La Russa. You can blame the players. It's everywhere. And there is a lot of negativity out there. I understand it because you had a whole season of just mediocre baseball. You had an offseason of just not a lot of aggressive moves that I think a lot of people wanted to see the White Sox make. So that just compounds all of this. You have the Mike Clevenger situation. We can talk about that if you'd like. Jose Abreu leaves. And there have been no games. There's spring training games. But, you know, what's going to make White Sox fans feel better? Wins. Real regular season wins. And there hasn't been an opportunity for them to have that in months. So what's going to change this negativity a baseball season. And I really do hope the White Sox get off to a good start. I do believe that even if they don't get off to a great start, like I'd like them to see, I do feel like fans are going to see what this team is going to be all about. They're going to play the way you want them to play. That's how I'm feeling this is going to play out. Not just with who they have on the team that was here, but Elvis Andrews. Billy Hamilton, um, there's just a uh, guys who were 
they needed some vocal leaders. There weren't any last year until you got Elvis Andrews on the team. Position players. You're seeing a little more of that that's going to help. I'm seeing. I'm, I've been the sideline reporter for a couple of games so far, and I just see what was missing and what's there now. And I think that there's so much little – there's so many little things that help a baseball team besides – what happens on the field besides the stats. It's just all the little stuff. And Sox didn't have much of that when things went south. Like, you know, when, when things are going great, you don't need all that little stuff as much. When you're scoring 10 runs a game, you don't need to play great defense, do the little things, have leadership. But when things go south, when guys get hurt, that's when that stuff gets exposed. Everything got exposed last season with the White Sox. So, I'd like to think they've got more band-aids, more tools, so to speak, when things go south. And they always do in a season. They've got to be able to stop the bleeding. I think, I believe this team has more things to stop the bleeding this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with your point that um, we're kind of in a holding pattern, so to speak, until the game starts because that's all that, all that will make fans feel better. Um, so I actually think that's a good segue into talking more about specific players. One thing that I'm interested in and I know a lot of people are talking about is the battle to make the roster specifically for the bench. I know that you have uh, tweeted a fair amount about Hans Alberto, who has been playing very well in the spring. So my question is, if we're going to assume, and you can correct me on this too if you disagree, but if we're assuming that three bench spots are going to Sebi Zavala or a catcher, Larry Garcia and Gavin Sheets, who do you see as having the edge potentially for that fourth spot? Since there are really you know, five or six options, I think, that are realistic. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Now, why is Hans Roberto, Alberto important? I actually have a podcast that is coming out on Tuesday all about Hans Roberto. And you're like, Chuck, why are you spending so much time on what a guy who'd be like the 26th man on the roster? You know who was one of the most popular players on the Dodgers last year? It was Hans Alberto. Yeah, you need thumpers. Yeah, you need on-base guys. Jordan, you like the on-base guys, I know. You need... Hanser Alberto's as well. I spoke with Salvador Perez at Royals camp. I brought up Hanser Alberto to him because he was his teammate for one year in 2021. And Salvador Perez said, every major league team needs to have a Hanser Alberto. He said he's one of the best teammates he's ever had. So you're like, what makes him such a great teammate? I'm looking at his stats here. There's not much there. He does hit left-handed pitching and hits it very well. He's very good against lefties throughout his whole career. He does that well. He plays short, second, third. But where he is great is he's one of the best teammates you can have. When a guy is struggling, when a team is struggling, he sees through the trees. He walks into the clubhouse. He switches. He's got this knack for switching the mood around, for saying the right thing to the right people. There are special players who can do that? This is one of those guys. He's not always been on winning teams, but he played with Elvis Andrews and with the Rangers in like 2014, 2016, 2017. He's, you know, he's with the Orioles. He was with the Royals. This is a guy who was brought in and he played under Pedro Grafal last season. So when I see that, when I see that, I'm thinking he's making the team. Pedro Grafal brought him in. He's batting 500 in the spring. I think he's going to make the team. Uh, what does this mean for Leary Garcia? I'd watch the Leary Garcia story unfold. 
He needs to step it up big time. I would not be shocked. I would not be shocked if the White Sox either deal him or eat the money. I could see that happening. I could see that happening because this team is all about winning. But we'll see what happens. Larry's got to play well. He, if he, he does, he does mean a lot to this team. He plays a lot of positions. But Pedro's got a couple of his guys, Billy Hamilton for one, Hans Roberto for another. So let's watch this competition unfold. The White Sox are all about winning. They are, believe it or not. So Larry Garcia needs to f- compete for a spot on this team. That is exactly what Pedro Grafal said at the very beginning of camp. He does not have this position wrapped up. He's got to compete for it. He's got to fight for it. He had a home run in a game. So I don't know how it's all going to play out, but I would not be shocked if Alberto and Billy Hamilton are on this team on opening day. And the, and the concept that you mentioned here, Chuck, of Griffol having his guys is an interesting one. It's something that a lot of fans have talked about, too, just in terms of uh, from the coaching staff perspective was who is he going to bring in? Who are his friends, so to speak, um, from the Royals? And, and we saw a couple guys, Mike Tosar, Eddie Rodriguez, come over. He has those friends in, in the coaching world. So hearing that, you know, those certain players he brings in that kind of fit his mold, his idea of what the team's going to be, um, it's kind of reassuring to hear in terms of like, he has this style, this blend of what he wants, but also he knows how the players who are here can kind of help fit that. Um, and before we go any further, I, I do want to touch on the on base thing. My goal is to get you to tweet the Yasmani Grandel Moneyball ball. If he gets on base at least once this year for a walk, just once. Listen, just I'm once all for, for walk. Yasmani Grandel getting on base. <laughs> I love that he gets on base. But when you have the slowest player in baseball getting on base, just getting on base, that just puts more of an emphasis on the guys behind him that have to drive him in mm-hmm. and get him from first to home uh, on a team that was hitting nothing but singles last year. But as I found out, and we all found out, that, I mean, Grandal was hurt last year. He was basically playing on one leg. So... Um, there's a lot more to the story than when that meets the eye. Many times when you're watching baseball players struggle like they do, like he did. So, um, I will not be tweeting that Jordan, but know that shame. when he does get on base, I do appreciate that he got on base. I want a nice blend of on base and power from Yasmani Grandal. So there we have it. And I'm not saying I don't trust me. I trust me. I, I completely agree with you. Just expect me in your uh, replies. Just well, just once in a while, dropping that gif here and there, just so you okay. know I'm around. I, so. I, I appreciate <laughs> that more than the uh, White Sox Twitter negativity that is just overwhelming. That's fair. That social media platform. So I'd rather see that than the venom, the White Sox venom from frustrated White Sox fans. I uh, I am on the receiving end of much of that. I understand it. I get it. That doesn't mean I like to to read about it. <laughs> well, I mean, Chuck, have you really have you really made it in any sort of the sports world until you have burner accounts dedicated to just bothering every single tweet that you post? I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's true. Um, yeah, no, but I, I agree. The negativity really does get overwhelming. And that's, that's something even on Twitter that I catch a lot of flack for. Cause I kind of, kind of go against it 
and that's where I get a lot of the burner accounts going yeah. at me for every little thing that I've tweeted and all that fun stuff. So um, I do like the I do like uh, the Yasmani Grand All Talk because I do uh, from from all all accounts it seems like he's somebody who's in a lot better shape. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily something that's going to help on the base pass. I don't know if his MLB the Show speed rating is going to be going up anytime soon. But um, hopefully, if he does take walks with being in a little bit better shape, hopefully rounding second and getting the third base on a well-hit ball to the gap could potentially, potentially, cross our fingers, be in the future. I think he's having a big year um, for a number of reasons. A, I think he is healthy. He does have to catch. And, you know, he does look healthy, but, you know, will he use his body? Stay healthy for the whole year. There are no promises. Them getting rid of the shift is going to be massive for him. And I spoke to him about that, I think it was yesterday or two days ago. You know, two of his hits so far in spring would have been outs last year. They were ground balls to right field that a second baseman, or actually would have been the shortstop, would have come over and been in that, you know, short uh, right field position, and he would have just thrown them out at first base. This year, those are hits. So a lot of the singles that would have been singles are now going to be singles again. So I, I think he's going to have a, a much better year um, offensively. And I, I think that's going to help him out immensely. Yeah, no, and I, I certainly think, you know, because there's a bit of a split opinion on banning the shift. Um, I, I think that's a, one of those really good topics of conversation when you talk to uh, fellow baseball fans or really anybody in the baseball world. Um, I also think that will really improve uh, Yohan Mankata's game personally. Um, cause I think he, uh, especially from the left side of the plate, he ended up just grounding into a lot of, a lot of well hit balls going right to where the shift was. Um, and I think that'll benefit him as well. But, um, my question, uh, just so I can get this snuck in here, but I, I really did like the grand doll discussion. Cause I think that is important, um, moving forward this year. And especially with us not really addressing the catcher position from anywhere else. Um, so to be blunt, we've been pretty limited in what we, what we can really see at home, Chuck. Um, that's why it's really nice to have you on here. Cause you've kind of had an eye on everything, but, um, what, what do you, what's your feel on the right field position right now? Um, because I know, I know obviously, and this is something that really kind of, uh, opened a lot of people's eyes to uh, Eloy Jimenez taking reps out there. Um, me personally, as a huge Eloy Jimenez guy. I hope, uh, I just hope he can stay healthy. And, um, I know that that could potentially be something to keep him in the lineup every day. But, um, as far as Gavin Sheets, Oscar Colas, is there really somebody that's kind of taking the stand in right field right now? Is there somebody who's maybe kind of showing the coaching staff that they belong there more than the other? I mean, two big left-handed bats. Right now, I think Oscar Colas is going to be the right fielder on opening day. Um, he's not a finished, finished product. His uh, bat plays. His bat plays in the majors. They are working with him on his base running, uh, on his defense. That is not... You know, if he's not a finished product in that, but certainly good enough to play right field. I think what they've said to Aloy Jimenez is this. We see that you want to play the outfield. We see that you have lost all this weight and you've tried to be more athletic. You want to play there. Go out there. Win the job. Or if not winning the job, go out there. Win the backup right field job. But if he shows that he can't win that job, DH. You're our full-time DH. Um, you know, Pedro has said, look, if I was 26 years old, I wouldn't want to be a full-time DH either. So he likes that Aloy Jimenez is taking it amongst himself to 
take it on himself to lose that weight, be more athletic, and have the opportunity to play right field. Um, I haven't been impressed with him in right field since he's been out here. Uh, even in practice, I haven't been impressed with him. Um, I like his hitting. Now he's, you know, he's leaving for the World Baseball Classic, so we're not going to have a ch- That's not necessarily going to help him in his quest to become uh, a right fielder, but I think Colas will be your starting right fielder for the White Sox. Uh, Gavin Sheets, you know, is a, is a left-handed bat that he could have as a backup. You got Billy Hamilton out there as well. I'm not sure how this is all going to mix and match, but um, I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of Aloy Jimenez as a DH this year. No, and that and that makes sense. Um, you know, even as a huge Oloy Jimenez guy, I just I've always seen the value in his bat more than anything. Um, I I guess I just it makes sense to try him out in an outfield position just just to either you know kind of appease him if anything, be like Oloy, you know, we want to give you a shot, we want to give you a fair chance. You know, like you said, he lost a lot of weight and you know got in really good shape. Um, but I I think more than anything throughout the course of the year, it seems like it would be something that would be used as Okay, we need to get this guy at DH, but we, you know, we really need Aloy to stay in the lineup. You know, can he survive in right field for a couple? Well, of one way you want to have Aloy Jimenez potentially in the outfield is if, say, Yasmani Grandal is just on a hot streak and he's hitting, and you can't have him catch seven days a week, so you have him DH. Where does Aloy play? Right field. So that that's how I see him playing some right field this year, and that makes a lot of sense. And just some more positivity on the Grandal front. I like it, Chuck. I'm a fan. <laughs> so before we let you go, uh, we can't let you sneak away without giving some sort of official prediction of some sort. Official. Um, you know, seeing the team, seeing the work on the field, off the field, hearing everything you've heard probably more than what we hear as fans, obviously, and kind of like you made with the Eloy point, seeing things that maybe we don't get to see in a broadcast, um, for example. What are your expectations for this team? I think we know what the team's expectations are going to be, or at least what they should be. But what are your expectations? And if you're willing to be risky enough to give your official record prediction, let's hear it here. All right. So I got to save those kind of predictions from my podcast, the White Sox Talk podcast. I can't just Easy give enough. them to you. <laughs> you guys are great guys, but I can't wait. We had to try yeah, this information you know, before blog, it's on job. my podcast. So I can't say that. Not going to give you a number of wins. I'm not going to tell you what, uh, where they're going to finish in the season. Um, I will tell you that in a season, talking about last year, that was worst case scenario. It really was worst case scenario. This team somehow won 81 games. So, in that respect, they're going to win more than 81 games, and. There is a chance for them to win around 90. Now, I also want to point out that the White Sox are playing the different schedule. They don't play as much against the American League Central like they did last year, uh, which is good and bad, actually. I mean, <laughs> you think, oh, you don't get the Royals. Well, actually, we don't want any more Royals games. The Royals always beat the White Sox for some crazy, stupid reason. Well, I know why, but that's a whole other podcast. Uh, but like, like you know, now we have Grafal and, to- and Tozar, so uh, maybe they have some answers. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to be a, a great division. I think that it'll obviously be the Twins, the, the Guardians, and the White Sox. One, two, three, and not in that order, but 
the, the cream of the crop in that division. This will be a better year. They will play better baseball. You will feel better about this team. And if you don't, if this team has a losing record at the end of the season, big changes will be coming. <laughs> I just, I mean, you can't do it two years in a row to the team, to the fan base. So, but I don't think it's going to happen. I, I, I am optimistic and with, a, with also a heavy dose of being realistic. I've talked to all the players on this team. They are so inspired to fix themselves individually. They have so much to prove. They are embarrassed. They were humiliated last year. And all the warts were exposed. Every single one of them. Did the front office address all of them? You can argue and say no. But getting Elvis Andrews here was massive, massive for this team. In the dugout, in the clubhouse, on the field. And I just feel like, you know, enough guys are going to stay healthy. I can't guarantee that all of them are going to stay healthy. There'll be better health. There will be better performance on the field. You throw all that in there, and I think they'll finish with a better record. They'll be competing all season, and they definitely have a chance to win the division. They're going to go to the playoffs, and we'll see what happens after that. There is my long-winded answer. I'm not giving you a position or where they're going to finish in the division. I'm not going to give you wins. But you can read between the lines and know what I'm, what I'm thinking about this team. How, does, how, how is that for an answer, Jordan? Well, I was going to blame you if I put like a, a bet on it and then all of a sudden I was like, well, Chuck said to do this and then I lost all this money. So I was going to put it all on you. No, but don't do that you, to you me. You played this smart. Don't do that to me. I, I do not. I just I have a job. I have opinions. I do not make or lose you guys money. <laughs> so I don't I don't don't put that responsibility on me. I was going to try, but I guess it's my point, or it's my problem. I know there's been a lot of negativity, and I get it, and I really hope that this is a a much better season. Listen, I do 155 pre- and post-game shows. Um, It's not uh, easy going on the show and talk about all these losses, Um, but it is my job, and I try to be as real and authentic as I can, and... um, you know, it's we have a lot of fun. The losses are usually better shows than the wins, just so you know. So when the White Sox lose, keep watching. <laughs> May not feel better about it, but um, you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful for a better season, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. No, Chuck Garfine, you you certainly do a great job. I think uh, I think you're held to a little bit of a high standard when you have to deal with, say, Ozzie Guillen or a Frank Thomas or a Scott Podsednik, who have you know lived and died with this team. Um, but Chuck. Thank you for joining us. A lot of great stuff. Um, you already had your shameless plug of your own podcast, but if you want to go ahead and plug it one more time, you go right ahead. Oh, no, I don't have to do it. But okay, sure, why not? Uh, listen to the White Sox Talk podcast. Uh, we got, we've got a lot of podcasts. Uh, when is this coming out, by the way? When is this one coming out? Um, this one should be coming out tomorrow. tomorrow. Okay. Yes. Then I will tell you that yep. the upcoming podcast, I went into enemy territory. I went into the Cleveland Guardians clubhouse to find out what they Ooh. think of the White Sox. That's coming out on And Wednesday. you live to tell the tale. That's spicy. I may have been confronted by Jose Ramirez. I may have been confronted by Jose. 
That is a very large and athletic man to be confronted by. <laughs> I, I, I applaud I applaud your courage, Chuck. But thank you very much, Chuck Garfine. Cannot wait to see you on the pre and post game show. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, that was Chuck Garfine. He uh, took the time to uh, join the uh, revamped Socks on 35th podcast. Um, you know, I've I've always had the uh, the idea that you'll always remember the first. Chuck, it was an honor. Uh, we, we might make you a plaque and send it to you at some point, but don't be looking for it in the mail because you never know. But um, no, I think uh, I think Chuck Garfine touched on a lot of a lot of big things, boys. I really I really think he did. Um, you know, I think the the number one thing is always gonna gonna be the uh, the Lori Garcia roster situation. I think that's a big one that's gonna be talked about. But honestly, something that kind of got lost in the fray a little bit, and I thought uh, was something that Chuck got really excited about was your question, Nick. I thought uh, I thought he really dove headfirst into that. You know, I I know you guys told me that Chuck was a big uh, big a big supporter, but how do you feel about that? How do you feel about how he answered your question, Nick? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I was I was pleased with that answer because he. He gave me some new ideas and that obviously I already knew that um, Pedro Griffola has like, you know, his guys, so to speak. I mean, Benintendi is the first name we all think of as, you know, a, a tie to someone who's now on the White Sox. But when it comes to people like Billy Hamilton or Hunter Alberto, um, while they have ties to Griffola, I haven't really thought about his power and putting them on the roster. Like, obviously it exists, but this whole time I've just been t- treating it as a given that Larry Garcia will be on the roster and you know maybe if he plays really poorly like like he did last year then come like june or july they bite the bullet and and dfa him but chuck kind of opened my eyes to the possibility that maybe it's realistic that if he doesn't play well even in spring that either he doesn't break camp with the team due to a dfa or you know it happens earlier than i thought because pedro has his guys that he prefers so just going through the possibilities when you remove garcia from this hypothetical bench there are just a lot more options because sure you could have Romy Gonzalez just take his exact role of being like the Swiss army knife. But at the same time, you could do some more interesting things like doubling up on power off the bench with Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger. As long as you have somebody, you know, more athletic and capable of playing um, premium positions, like say Billy Hamilton in center field. So just the thought of that will, you know, get me um, a lot more interested in some of these bench configurations. I think that there's, a lot of creativity there that that Pedro could use if Garcia is not um, on the team. So that's just something to monitor going forward, I think. And, you know, a lot of this Leary Garcia situation, it, it kind of reminds me of, if we remember Jeff Kepinger from a couple of years ago, not a couple, but where he was one year through a three-year deal and the Sox cut ties, they were done. It, it's refreshing. It's interesting to hear that, they're, they're willing to entertain that idea potentially because the idea that, you know, you make a team because of your contract is, is fine. In some cases, it's fine when you're Miguel Cabrera. It's not necessarily fine when you're Leary Garcia. Um, and to your point, Nick, I think it opens up the, the flexibility overall of, you know, who fits in here now, instead of having to treat someone as a given, do we choose to build this roster a different way? So on and so forth. That, that was my biggest takeaway in total was just it, it was a huge kind of difference maker for me in terms of thinking, okay, yeah, there might be a potential. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. It, there's a potential to not have to view this as Leary Garcia as a guarantee here. 
Yeah, no, and I think um, I think Chuck actually touched on quite a bit of that pretty well, especially when he was talking about the vibe vibe of spring training this year compared to previous years. Um, most notably, the position battles. You know, even even with the even when he answered my Aloy Jimenez question, um, it kind of kind of had an overbearing theme where it's like we're gonna have guys go out there and prove they belong on the team. Like we're gonna have guys go out there and win a position. It's not gonna be a situation. And I feel like that was kind of an issue with the Tony Larusa era was guys came into spring training just a little too comfortable with where they were. You know, they, a lot of these guys they were still kind of had that aura about them that uh, you know they were somebody who was gonna be on this team regardless. You know, like Tony had his guys set in place. He was never gonna toss somebody under the bus in spring training. You know, he was kind of pretty set with his roster, and we kind of saw it with how. Uh, roster management was used a lot of the guys in spring training weren't getting a lot of a lot of at bats because we knew they would be on the team whereas this year we're seeing starting quality players really kind of go right at it you know we we have guys that are um we have guys that are trying to win position battles you know in Leori Garcia included um I think uh I think bring bring in Elvis Andrews really kind of uh throws a hamper in that plan especially when you look at Leori Garcia even being used as a utility guy near the end of last year, just not seeing the field, you know, just, just flat out not getting opportunities. And with Pedro Grafal kind of coming in and setting his new, setting his new roster, setting his new culture and being able to kind of go from the Tony LaRusa culture to a culture that you're trying to bring in. Unfortunately, a guy like Leora Garcia probably isn't going to fit into those plans. You know, I, I agree with a lot, the, a lot of what Chuck said in that respect, because outside of just, you know, blind hatred of Leori Garcia that I see on Twitter and stuff like that. You know, I do think there is something to be said about um, a guy who has been with the roster as long as he has, and there's something to be said about guys who belong in the locker room. But being a locker room guy in a regimen change really doesn't hold as much weight as it as it did, you know. So it's something something I thought that was interesting, but I really uh, I really am interested to see uh, how the bench ends up playing out. Um, you know, Jake Berger is another guy I think get brought up, but I think that's another interesting one uh, to see where he starts the beginning of the season. You know, is he on the major league roster? Is he somebody who's kind of on the bubble? Um, I don't think he's somebody that will, you know, especially with his contract and uh, what he's done with his bat, somebody who's necessarily in, in fear of being just outright, you know, DFA or anything like that, but something interesting to watch. Um, so Nick, I thought it was, I thought it was a great question. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with a lot of what Chuck said. And I think, um, I think the vibe is definitely, you have to come in and earn it and you have to come in and be somebody who, uh, is willing to buy in because if you're not going to buy in, then we'll sell you out. Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about these position battles that, that you mentioned, I think that one thing that's pretty cool about having Chuck on the podcast is that. As we said when he was here, he's he's there. You know, even the most diehard fans right now can't really um, see any of this unless they're physically at all these games. And even then, Chuck is not just at games, but you know, he has so much more access. And one thing that he said that was interesting to me was that when he had seen Aloy Jimenez take reps in right field, he said that he was not overly impressed or something like that, which is interesting. Not that I thought Chuck would be like, "Wow, he looks amazing out there. He's a Gold Glover," but but at the same time, like. I think that a, a, a slim down Jimenez, like actually even last year, like he wasn't slow necessarily. He has some athletic ability. The problem, as we all know in the outfield, is he either gets injured or you know he has those just crazy low lights that go viral. And I wasn't necessarily concerned for that reason with him like winning the right field job over someone like Oscar Colas. But at the same time, I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe the plan is for him to play there like you know two or three times a week while Colas adjusts to major league pitching and. 
hearing Chuck say that he has not looked that impressive defensively, um, it's just interesting because, you know, I mean, obviously props to, to Jimenez for, for getting in shape and for trying so hard, but it, it is a little reassuring, I guess, in a way, even though it feels backwards to say it's reassuring to hear a player is not <laughs> defending well. It is reassuring because I feel like that makes me more makes the team more comfortable just putting him at DH more often where we all know he is, you know, not guaranteed to be healthy, but at least a little bit more likely and um, a lot more dangerous with the bat. I'm just glad he didn't come on and be like, yeah, Eloy Jimenez, right field, book it. Like, th- th- there, there was some realism, too, where it's like, we kind of all thought it. It's good to have somebody there confirming it. Uh, Ty Buddy, I would have been far more concerned if he came on. It's like, really? Eloy, right field? Like, it, it's actually that good? I, I don't believe it. Um, the only other thing I do want to add, you know, we've been talking about both Hondra Roberto and now Eloy a little bit. My biggest concern in what... I hope doesn't become the case. And I think it's something to watch. And Duke, it's to your point, guys have to earn their spot. My hope, my concern is that we we just don't have a replacement of Leary Garcia, who was Tony's guy, with Hansra Alberto or Billy Hamilton, who is Grafal's guy, where we do the same cycle of underperformance, not earning their roster spot, but they still end up there. Alberto breaks camp with the team, that's one thing. Or if Hamilton breaks camp with the team, that's one thing. We can discuss the merits of that in general. But if it's early May and these guys are hitting a buck 40 and they're still here, it's like, well, you have Roman Gonzalez now. You have a legitimate backup option in this case. Now it's time to cut rope. Now it's time to show that you're at, like, that is one place where, you know, everyone say words are hollow. Absolutely. Um you have that opportunity to show that your words aren't just hollow, that they mean something, that, yes, guys have to earn this spot. We did it when we hypothetically cut Garcia, and we did it in May when we cut Alberto for underperformance. Like, that that sort of cycle where it's like, you don't want these guys to get cut. I'm not saying I want them to get cut and not perform. I'm saying, if that happens to be the case, don't just recreate the Tony LaRusa situation with a new manager. Make sure that you're practicing what you claim to be preaching throughout spring training. Well, you know, and I, I think the biggest key to that, Jordan, to kind of, kind of clue, like just kind of tie all of that up together is you need to have a legitimate plan in place. If you are going to hold these guys accountable per se, you know, um, it can't just be Griffall bringing in one of his guys and that's his guy. It has to be somebody that's actually coming and earning that spot because, you know, it, as much as the fan base loves Billy Hamilton, I love Billy Hamilton as well. Buck 40 in May doesn't sound crazy for Billy Hamilton. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's a very real possibility. And while Billy adds a lot on the defensive side of the defensive side of the coin, as well as base running, and as well as, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say considering getting on base per se, but there is also the idea of can he hit a baseball? You know, so there is there's a lot of positives, positives and negatives to a lot of these guys. And I think everybody's kind of ready to kind of um, – you know, cut ties with Leori Garcia right off the bat. And I'm not, I'm in no way defending that or defending Leori Garcia because he just flat out hasn't performed. But we need to have a genuine like plan in place if we're going to be getting rid of him. We can't just be getting rid of getting rid of him just to do it. You know what I mean? Because he does add a bit to the locker room and he does play multiple positions. Does he add a lot with the bat? Probably not, but. At the very least, you could probably get like two fifteen out of him, and you have to be able to under you have to be able to have an upgrade to that. You know what I mean? And Romy Garcia, Romy Gonzalez is a pretty 
pretty interesting idea, you know, honestly, because he can play a lot of different positions and he has been somebody who's just been kind of hovering, you know, hovering around the club, hovering within triple uh, a and the major league ball club and kind of waiting to take that next spot. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think, I think Chuck touched on a lot of good things. And I think, um, I think there was a lot of good info in that. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready for opening day. I am, uh, I'm ready for the home opener. Um, and speaking of the home opener, just to uh, tie it all nicely into one point, Sox on 35th just happens to be giving away two tickets to the home opener. Um, and I'm not, I'm not talking like 500 level on, you know, Mount Jerry or anything like that. This is section 115. These are beautiful seats. I've, I've seen them personally. They're very nice. You get concourse access with this as well. That's a nice little perk. Um, and who knows? Maybe you run into me down at the ballpark and I'm tailgating. Maybe I'm tailgating with somebody you know. You never know. And uh, maybe if you win these tickets, I might just invite you over to my tailgate, give you a burger, a brat, and, uh, well, 21 and older, maybe a beer. You never know. But um, over on uh, SoxOn35th.com, if you go and look, you'll be able to find our contest. It is under the Socks on 35th podcast set for relaunch on May set, March 7th, 2023, which would be hopefully today if you're in the loop. Um, but, yes, if you want to go over, uh, they have a lot of different ways you can enter. We have currently over 1,500 entries. So if you want to get over there and you want to get your entries in, now would probably be time to do it. Maybe subscribe over to the Socks on 35th YouTube page. Even if you're not doing it to enter the contest, you should probably just do that anyway, just so you can be in the loop as far as the podcast goes on YouTube. But um, unless you have anything else, guys, I think uh, I think that's a pretty good spot to wrap up. I think uh, I think the revamp is back, and I think the first episode is uh, in the books. I'm not letting us be done without a Mountain Jerry. That was a Mountain Jerry reference. That was phenomenal. I loved that. I don't know why, just randomly out of nowhere. I loved that. Um, but other than that, no, just a final quick thank you to Chuck Garfine. Um, like Duke said, you always kind of remember that first one. Uh, so glad to have him on. Glad to have the insight that he provided. Um, I'm excited to go jump in his uh, replies and send that yes gift as many times as I can this year. Uh, but... Really appreciate everyone for tuning in to the first one, hopefully the first of many. Um, looking forward to talking with the three of you throughout the season and hopefully many more. Well, the two of you. With the two of you. I'm the third. Yeah. I mean That was I'm I'm we're not I'm not back yet. We're back as a <laughs> podcast. I'm not back yet. <laughs> uh Jordan Lazowski, uh <laughs> acclaimed Sox math winner multiple times Sox math winner (laughs) (laughs) but uh this has been the Sox on 35th podcast and go Sox go Sox go Sox